Hi, this is not Arnold, but you should still listen to the 430 Movie podcast at 430movie.com. It's really fun. You'll like it. This is not Richard Dreyfus, but if you want to travel into space with aliens, you should listen to the Inglorious Trexperts podcast, the ultimate Star Trek podcast for sci-fi fans with a life. Hello and welcome to Best Movies Never Made. I am your co-host, Josh Miller, and with me always is the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. (laughs) Steven Scarlatta. Hello. (laughs) Uh, And we have a very special guest here today to talk to us about his movie that was never made, Johnny Quest, Mr. Fred Decker. Hello. Uh, And after that, we are also going to talk about, in a way you could say, a movie that was never made, even though it was made, The Predator. Um, but first things first, let's begin here with Johnny Quest. Um, so, Fred, like what year around was this when you kind of, uh, you were a lifelong fan and we've read, we found some old articles of you even talking about Johnny Quest and like older, mm. before I think you were working on the movie. I'm curious how you were able to finally get either this job or get it off the ground yourself. Well, as you may know from personal experience, when you get into show business, when you come to Hollywood, you want to be a filmmaker, whatever it is. If if you get any traction, you are what we call the flavor of the week. Yes. <laughs> and some people parlay that into a lifelong career. Um, some people it lasts about a week. So I was the flavor of the week to the, to the point where I wrote a script in three weeks and uh, said to my agent, I want to direct this. And he said, okay. And he found a producer, and the producer said, I love this. Let me submit it to a th- to a, one of the studios. They submitted the studio. The studio said, we love this. Let's make it. And that was Night of the Creeps. There were no hurdles. I had to show them some film that I had shot. There were no hurdles. So it was kind of this flavor of the week thing. So I made Night of the Creeps, and uh, for, for fans of the film, or, the, or it's my follow-up to that, The Monster Squad, there's a little Easter egg for The Monster Squad in Night of the Creeps. Um, I went directly into Monster Squad. Creeps tanked, by the way. It was a complete bomb. But I was already on to Monster Squad, so I didn't really care. Um, there's, an, there's an Easter egg in Monster Squad. There were originally two, but we lost the rights to uh, using a comic book on camera. Uh, there's an Easter egg about Mo- Johnny Quest, because that was going to be my next movie after Monster Squad. Not only was it going to be, but we had the deal, because... Monster Squad was looking very good. Taft Barish at that time uh, was the company that produced it, um, and they had the Hanna-Barbera Library. They owned the rights to anything that Hanna-Barbera had done. This, these rights then went to Turner, as did everything with Taft Barish. What year was this, like 87? 87. Had there been any Hanna-Barbera adaptations? I'm trying to think. Of... Oh, like had they? Oh had no, a, no, none. So this would have been the first. No, I mean Amblin, into a Amblin movie did the Flintstones, Flintstones yeah. later, and everybody's talked about doing the Jetsons forever. But no, I mean Hanna Barbera is an animation house. Mm-hmm. But the closest thing they came to something that was sort of in the live action mold was Johnny Quest, which had human characters apart from Bandit, who was a you know lovable uh, dog, which you could do in live action too. So uh, towards the end of Monster Squad, Keith Barish, I think might have been Rob Cohen or both of them said what do you want to do next and I said I want to do Johnny Quest and they said okay 
So I actually had a deal to write and direct the Johnny Quest movie uh, after we finished Monster Squad. Then the movie came out, um, was seen by 12 to 13, 12 and a half people worldwide, <laughs> and that, uh, that contract mysteriously disappeared. Until about uh, less than 10 years later, um, I'd made Robocop 3, which was another bomb for me. So I was licking my wounds and just trying to make a living. And, uh, but I was friends with uh, uh, Dick Donner and Lauren Schuler Donner. Dick was actually one of my mentors during uh, the beginning of Tales from the Crypt, which was a really wonderful time. I had Walter, I, Robert Zemeckis first and foremost, who asked me to write the very first episode of Tales from the Crypt. And then there was Walter Hill and David Geiler and Dick Donner. And it was like, these were my heroes. How many episodes did you end up working on? I wrote five and directed one. So I knew Dick and I knew his wife, Lauren, and um, uh, a girlfriend of, uh, of mine at the time was working for them for several years. So I was kind of in the club in a way, and I heard they were doing Johnny Quest. And I went to Dick and Lauren and said, guys, can I write this? And they said, sure. So that's how I got that job. So it's interesting. So you had already written. That's that's actually the most interesting part of the story. I hadn't written it because okay. because we were working on Monster Squad and waiting for its triumphant premiere, <laughs> which never happened. So um, we sort of parted friends, and uh, but that movie was never my 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 deal wasn't going to go through. So there was no reason for me to write it. And I realized in retrospect that I probably wasn't ready to write it yet. I needed a little more mileage under me, a little more life experience so that when the Donners were doing it um, I felt like I had something I had a pitch I had a way in that I was really excited about well it's interesting you say that because uh, before recording the shows with Steve and I were just chit-chatting um, I brought up and Steve had felt the same thing this is one of the best scripts I've ever read even ignoring whether what that means about the movie as a movie, just like the read of the script. It's like mm -hmm. so breezy and fun. It just kind of increasingly enraged me <laughs> that the movie doesn't exist. That means a lot to me. Thank you. This is Yeah, this is like, you know, I, I did a documentary called Jodorowsky's Dune, which was like my number one, like, passion, like, w movie that wasn't made. But, man, Johnny Quest is top five, like, painful when I see the script because it you, you nailed the perfect Johnny Quest film. Like, I can't see anything else being more perfect than this script for Johnny Quest. Like, you, you nailed everything about it, the globetrotting and, like, the... The, the high gadgets, the the adventure, the you know the monsters. There's this awesome like Indiana Jones, Temple of Doom violence factor to it. <laughs> yes, it's actually shockingly violent for but, but, what a fun family movie it also is. Yeah, and then so you were, so this is like around 1994 now, right? Yeah, yeah. and yeah, and it's like perfect time for this because Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade just came and went, mm. and that was the last Indiana Jones. Like This seemed like the perfect movie now or franchise to take over. I'm even going to read here uh, the, the opening of the script, page one here. It says, it starts with a drum solo, Gene Krupa-style, jungle rhythm, building momentum until it becomes a wailing blast of early 60s jazz brass, and our main title logo appears, a gleaming promise of high adventure, Johnny Quest. I'm just like, that's a, I'm, I'm already <laughs> excited, and nothing's technically happened. You're just describing music that starts playing in the title. Yeah. Um, 
So I'd say, uh, and since uh, people should listen to our other episode we did with Fred about Godzilla 3D, which was also a very excellent script, but you just talking about the the mileage, you know, the expertise you'd learn from writing multiple scripts, you can really feel um, just like the upgrade mm. in your writing style. Well, that's nice to know. I'd also, you know, had the shit kicked out of me by my, <laughs> bo- my movies bombing, so I needed to up the ante. But I think with this particular project, it's it's one of my favorites. It's probably my f- my favorite script I've written. But more than that, it's 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 a pro uh, a, um, a a project, uh, an intellectual property that means a great deal to me and has for a very long time. So I think you really bring your A game. Uh, it's like Stephen's documentary. If there's something that you love. It's just going to be better, I mm-hmm. think, because you're bringing passion to it. Well, you can feel like, because uh, you were definitely Johnny Quest um, generation. Uh, I watched some of it because my older brother loved it, but he could also sense that it was an old show. So he was sort of like, oh, if maybe you won't love Johnny Quest. You'd love the Carl Barks, Donald Duck, Scrooge McDuck. Just kind of the same wow. thing about a family, wow, kids and adults adventuring around, but, finding But they're temples. ducks, you know. Yes. <laughs> just for the record. Um, but, uh, yeah, I guess talk a little bit about what you put into it in your own fandom, kind of what you loved about the cartoon that you knew could make this great movie for adults, really. Well, I... Uh... I think the fact that it, that, I mean, Joe Barbera and I had many meetings, and and Joe basically just flat out admitted, you know, he'd done, they were doing the Flintstones, which is the first primetime animated uh, series, and they were doing all of their various talking animal sitcoms, Top Cat and Huckleberry Hound and all those. And like many people at that time, this was before my time, I was just a, a baby when Dr. No came out, but uh, he went and saw Dr. No, which was the first James Bond film, and it just threw him for a loop, as it did with so many other people, uh, including Stanley Kubrick, who said, I need that production designer. Who designed that movie? <laughs> so uh, so uh, his idea was to do James Bond as an animated adventure series with human beings and not talking animals. And so... I realize now when I think about the Godzilla uh, movie that wasn't made that had a kid protagonist and obviously the Monster Squad. And uh, I, there was something at that time and maybe still to this day that I find I'm in touch with my inner child by writing kids. So the idea of doing a James Bond movie with a kid to me was you can't do better than that. Mm-hmm. So uh, that was really the, the that's where the passion started with. But then the more I got into Bond and the more the more of a nerd I became about the 60s spy movies, the more I, I, I mean, I can do chapter and verse on, on the James Bond films. And one of the things that I firmly believe is that they, they peaked, with the exception of the new Casino Royale, which I think is one of the best, uh, they peaked with Honor Majesty's Secret Service, which was made in 1969. So most people listening to this, when you think James Bond, you're thinking of Daniel Craig. Your older brother thinks of Pierce Brosnan. Pierce Brosnan. <laughs> His older brother thinks of Timothy Dalton. The truth is those first six are the best. And when we talked about Johnny Quest, I thought, well, Joe and, and Bill Hanna made this series in 1964. The movie has to take place in 1964. Because technology, when you're talking about high tech and gadgets and all that stuff, as you know, time seems to just move faster and faster and faster. So anything that's cool now, or anything that's topical now, 
I mean, we're going to stop saying Me Too very soon. There'll be another name for it. Um, but think of the technology. Think of your phone. Think of any of that stuff. That's the stuff that the Bond movies kind of thrived on because they would always think, what's going to be, what, what are they going to have in, you know, three years or five years? You know, the jet ski and the spy mm-hmm. who loved me. That was, that was really cool. Now, you know, you can go and buy one uh, a street corner. So I thought the way that this movie won't age, the way to make it timeless is to have it be a period piece. Which worked for Raiders of the Lost Ark, too. Absolutely did. The, but the great thing about um, this particular one is that in 1964, a lot of the political correctness that has taken over wasn't there yet. So I could make race Bannon smoke cigarettes. I could have him drink alcohol. I could have him hit on women, which is all the things that the race Bannon of the series would have done if it was a live action movie made in the 90s. So it was very liberating in that way to make it a period piece. And then we could just do these cool gadgets that will look kind of retro. Um, that was exciting for me and, and the character work as well. Could you maybe uh, tell the listeners too, just kind of give a summary of what the story of the movie was? Um, Dr. Benton Quest is a brilliant scientist. In the original series, he's very hail fellow well met and very kind of, Come on, Johnny, let's go investigate this mysterious mummy tomb. I decided that if he was going to be a brilliant scientist, that wouldn't leave a lot of uh, room in his brain to be a good father. So that bought me the idea of having Race Bannon, who is a, a, a secret agent, he's a federal agent, be recruited essentially to keep an eye on Johnny because Quest is a little bit asleep at the wheel in the family uh, situation. He is a uh, widower, so Johnny's mom is nowhere to be seen. So he's, he's got an emotional burden that he's not prepared to deal with because he's much more interested in microscopes and, and spaceships and uh, things like that. So uh, that, what that bought was a, a spy character you know, imagine Daniel Craig having to look after a kid, and it's the last thing he wants to do is to live on an island in a lab with an old guy and his kid. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so um, the, the story is really this kind of mismatched group, this uh, um, sort of surrogate family, if you will, including Haji, the uh, uh, young Indian boy that they meet in India who sort of joins their group, who's also an orphan. So you have this kind of ersatz family who uh, have to deal with uh, an evil despot who who uh, has a nefarious plan that may cause the end of civilization. Well, I thought what you did by, in some ways the movie, you could almost say the central character is Race Bannon um, because we begin with him and he kind of comes in as, even though he himself needs to be healed and have mm-hmm. a hole filled, he's what kind of brings the Quest family together because you have a great little two-scene combo that I thought worked really nicely where Race is hanging out with Johnny, and at the end of the scene, Johnny's like, you're way easier to talk to my dad, and then he has to go hang out with the dad, and at the end of that scene, the dad's like, you're way easier to talk to than my son, and Race is just kind of like, oh, Jesus, like, what did I get myself into? Exactly. These people are so broken. He's indispensable because they're so screwed up. Um, Well, you said earlier about, you know, making a movie with a kid protagonist that adults would want. Well, I think I didn't consciously make Race sort of the main character, and I'm not sure he is. But I do know he was the one I was he's most interested in. He's just our entry in. point. Exactly. We meet him first, and then he gets assigned he's to the our, Quest He's family. our point of view, yeah. 
Yeah, and it's pretty. I, I love how Haji comes into the story because you have this dysfunctional family, and Johnny's really lonely, and it was the perfect setup to bring Haji in. And I was wondering, was that like, did you create that Haji origin story? Was that something Joseph Barbera talked to you about, or? I think I made it up. Yeah, it's not. I think he's with the he's with the group in the first in the pilot, the first episode, mm-hmm. file O three seven. He's with them, so uh, I I think they may have done a flashback Haji origin at some point, but I don't remember. It's a great store origin for him coming into this family and being friends with John. Because up to that point, you feel bad for Johnny too, being lonely. He doesn't really have a dad. His only friends are these bodyguards. Yeah, and so it was a perfect fit. And then again, like Haji's a, a magician too, which cr- kind of cracked me up yeah. in this one. Yeah, there's always awesome. going to be some magic. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, yeah, I, I I love that about this. Well, actually. Uh, Building off of what Steve was just asking, like when you're putting together a story, and I'm also curious about this because I'm currently working on a script that is also based on an old animated show, um, what you drew from individual episodes, because I actually popped on because I couldn't quite remember what the Johnny Quest theme song looked like. So How the other, can you not sounded remember like, <laughs> the so Johnny? The other day I put I put it on the intro on YouTube and I'm like, oh, there's from the movie. I was like, oh, there's the pterodactyl. Oh, giant spider robot right. are yes. both there in the intro. So I'm imagining that that was how you kind of generated a lot of what you wanted to see in the movie. Right. Well, one way to write a movie, for those of you at home, <laughs> one approach is see the trailer in your head. Mm-hmm. R- write the trailer and imagine it. And I always felt that the the title sequence of the Johnny Quest show would be the best trailer of all time. So I literally just plucked everything from the title sequence yeah. <laughs> and worked it into the plot. That's a good idea. <laughs> yeah, I, that's what I loved about the script. <laughs> when I was reading it, I'm like, that's from the title sequence. That's from the title <laughs> sequence. And I thought that was really cool. The mum- there's no mummy in the movie. I know. There? there is no mummy. There's no crazy lizards. But, yeah, but, there's, but quite a, there's quite a few the things. Hover, those hover vehicles are there. Yes. Um, the, 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 robot, the robot spy, the spider robot is, is there. And the army shooting at it, which is a phenomenal set piece in the film, mm. by the way. That mechanical spider scene is fantastic. Well, and also it's spooky. I mean, that's one thing that Doug Wiley did really well. I mean, he also drew westerns and other kinds of adventure uh, strips, but uh, he he was just a real visionary when it came to giving it a kind of a reality base. When you look at his drawings, they don't look like cartoons. He hated Bandit, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Doug, I don't think Doug ever drew Bandit except for the comics in the 90s because he had to. Like he had a, a deal to do a cover for the Johnny Quest comic and he's like, all right, I'll draw the goddamn dog. He hated Bandit. And I get it. I mean, it was a, it was a throwing a bone to the kids. Yeah. Well, this was for Ted Turner Pictures, the, the 94 version. And I remember there was a cartoon out at the same time Yes, and the just, real Johnny Quest, they called it. Yeah, because I was curious because at the same time, James Cameron was supposed to do Spider-Man. It got canceled, but there was a Spider-Man cartoon without a, a uh, an origin story because that was supposed to take place in James Cameron's film. Right. And then there was this crazy Aliens cartoon that was supposed to come out that never came out, but they released the toy line. Mm. And so I was just wondering, that was supposed to come out when Alien 3 came out. I was wondering, was that like a whole thing? Uh, the cartoon, was that supposed to be connected at all no, with your film? No. I mean, in those days, if a company had intellectual property, they would either take advantage of it for their own purposes or they would um, license it to someone else. Um, but this whole kind of, I, I, I have to credit Kevin Feige. I have to credit Marvel 
for the idea of let's coordinate all of these pieces so that they're all part of one entity um, because that's the best way to do quality control. Yeah. Uh, that's very recent. Hmm. I was going to say that to jump forward a little bit to the painful part, how close did this movie <laughs> get to getting made? Because in some of the articles Steve dug up and sent me, I saw a lot of them were noting this was in April of 1994, noting that it was scheduled to begin production next year. Mm. Um, so it seems like it was poised to move forward. Um, I was uh, I was never considered to direct the movie, so I was really just the writer. Uh, so the rooms that I would normally, the, the rooms and the meetings that I would normally be in if I was a producer or director, I was not in. Yeah. So I honestly don't know. I know that Amy Pascal, who was running the company at that time, was very high on the script. And she, uh, she was talking about, she was interested in Chris Columbus taking a crack at it, which was before Harry Potter. So it's not, uh, it's not, not necessarily a bad idea. But uh, I, I wasn't consulted particularly. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know if it was political or if it was, you know, a changing of the guard. I mean, Turner then was absorbed by, Turner Pictures was absorbed by Warner Brothers, mm -hmm. who now owns the rights to this property and all of the Hanna-Barbera stuff as well. So I honestly can't answer that question. I wish yeah. I knew, but I don't. Yeah, because when Turner Pictures, you know, folded, then they also had this crazy slate with like Gilligan's Island, the movie, Spike Lee's Jackie Robertson biopic, and then a Michael Crichton so modern I thought, day. I thought you were going to say that Spike Lee was going to make yeah. Gilligan's <laughs> Island. I'm like, I want to see that movie. Yeah, <laughs> so, so when Turner Pictures folded, Johnny Quest, along with some other projects they had on a crazy slate, did too. Above. Well, it may be like uh, um, uh, uh, Taft Barish which um, ran out of steam. I don't think they had really any hits. The, the, the movies they made were uh, Light of Day, the Paul Schrader movie with Michael J. Fox, um, Ironweed with Jack Nicholson and Meryl Streep. And those are both sort of heavy dramas. Um, I think the most fun movie they made was The Running Man with Arnold Schwarzenegger, mm -hmm. which was probably also their biggest hit. So they ran out of steam in that same way. And Turner, maybe the same way. They, maybe they, did they even release any movies? Uh, I think the one they did release was the the John Travolta movie where he was an angel, Michael. Oh, oh, uh, yeah. That one yeah. they released, but then it seems like they folded like right before it came out. I don't remember seeing the Turner logo on the big screen ever, so it may be they just went belly up. And yeah, there's a popular uh, um, habit in Hollywood, which is when you know, you know start fresh, and that means just throw out everything that everybody else did before. Um. One thing is, it was interesting reading this and your Godzilla script back to back, because uh, I also think, I just know from my own experience, but also reading and watching other people's work, is you can always tell when somebody has that, like, itch they keep scratching. And <laughs> uh, that in Godzilla, there's an almost identical scene in Johnny Quest of frogmen popping out of the water and climbing up on a boat mm -hmm. and like throwing knives and killing everybody mm -hmm. on board. Um, Which is from the main credits of Johnny Quest. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, it's just funny that, that that you put that in Godzilla before you even got the Johnny Quest. But then kind of moving now up to the Predator, is it seemed like you had, like you wanted to do things about kind of mercenary guys fucking each other up. Yeah. Um... The Predator was was a, was new in many regards. I mean, we have the kid, 
We have the dysfunctional family. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of those things that oh, you yeah, see. Oh, yeah, there's a kid. I forgot. Yeah, no, yeah, there's a lot of things really that you is a through see. Line. That, and, and there's a kid in Iron Man 3. I mean, Shane and I, we, we kind of like, there's, there's certain things at the table that we like to eat, and we just eat them again and again and again. But the... the the mercenaries, the, the the servicemen in the Predator was really our attempt to do the Dirty Dozen. Yeah. Because it was our feeling, maybe even mine more than Shane, because he was actually in the original Predator movie and he was one of those guys. And, there, and that group, Arnold and Jesse Ventura and Sonny Lanham and, and Bill Duke, they're, it's, they're, they're iconographic, but they're macho 80s guys with big biceps. They even, McTiernan even does a big close-up of their big rippling biceps. And Shane and I both feel that it's a different world now. And, yeah. And if you think of us, in those days when you thought of a soldier, it's like, it's commando. It's, it, it, was, it was the Reagan era. Now servicemen are fighting in wars they don't understand, probably because they want to be soldiers because they're unhappy in whatever else they're doing, or they want to fight for some idea of what America is, but that's not necessarily the war that they're being sent to fight and when they come back basically uh not to be you know political or maudlin but you know they're not treated all that well um so we wanted our heroes to be the kind of the also rams the the runts the 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 guys that the, the government just wants to throw away because that to me is a much more interesting hero than the guy who's ripped and has a bunch of weapons as mr and is mr cool it's and, and it's a throwback to the Monster Squad too. I mean, in many ways, there are a lot of parallels between Shane's uh, Shane and, and my script for Monster Squad and for this one, which is the ragtag group of kind of also rans, the last people you think that can save the world, or the people that will do it. What was it even maybe backing up a little bit? Because yeah, you guys, for those who don't know, co-wrote Monster Squad together. Yes. Um, how old were you guys when you first met? We met around 1979 or 80, so, you know, 20 years old. Yeah. Um, well, speaking of, he's in Predator. How weird was that? Because he's not really an actor. Were you kind of, was he like, hey, I'm going to be in Predator? Were you kind of it like, was what very the strange. fuck are you talking about? It was very strange. I mean, this is a little bit of this is just history, is me and Shane's history. But but I had, uh, you know, I got my agent and I was starting my career, and Shane was like, hey, is it hard to write a script? And I was like, well, it's easier than writing a novel because there's more pauses and on the page, you, you know, big spaces that you don't have to fill. And he goes, let me try. So he wrote a, um, he wrote a terrible script called Shadow Company, which we then rewrote for John Carpenter to direct at Universal. Oh, interesting. <laughs> uh, after, you know, Shane hit it big. But, but right after Monster Squad, he wrote Lethal Weapon. So he was the flavor of the week for years and years. And to, to, there's an argument that he still is. So uh, he, got his, he got a seat at the grown-ups table very early on. He was young, too. He was 22 or something like that when he wrote Lethal Weapon. So Joel Silver, who produced... Uh, Predator said, you know, hey, I need you. I need you to write this. I need you to help me write this script. Now, it already had a script by the Thomas Brothers. But the story is that is that he, he talked Shane into coming to Mexico to Puerto Vallarta to shoot, to, to, to do the movie. He said, you can be in it. Because Shane said, I want to just be an actor. He goes, come and work on the script. I didn't know he actually wanted to be an actor. Oh, he was an actor real. in college. Yeah. Oh, I didn't when I know met that. him, he was at Theater Arts at UCLA. Yeah. And uh, did a lot of plays and... Uh, and short films that our friend Chris Matheson uh, directed. Uh, yeah. I liked him in As Good As You Get. There he is. As Good As It Gets. There you go. Uh, and RoboCop 3. And he's in RoboCop 3 as well. <laughs> so, yeah, he starred as an actor. And 
as a sideline, not anything to do with, with what we're talking about here, though, it's one of the things that I think make him a good actor's director because he understands their process and he lets them sort of take a breath and figure it out. And uh, they actors like him quite a bit. Um, okay, but but now moving forward, I guess I was curious, like how did even The Predator become a thing you guys were doing? Um, was that something that was brought to Shane? Yeah. Uh, and then he was just like, hey, you want to work on a Predator movie? Yeah. Um, That's it. Yeah. So you're trying to do this Dirty Dozen thing, and I guess some people might wonder why we are talking about a movie that just came out on a podcast about movies that never got made. But I guess for those who don't know, and I don't know, actually, I don't even remember how much of this is reported versus things like just because I know you in real life. Well, no, I think the. But I, I, I think. I feel like it was reported. Look, I'm a nerd, so when I call somebody a nerd or I talk about the nerd fan base, I'm not uh, dissing on you. I'm one of you. But the nerd press online loves to pick up just the tiny, you know, Mark Hamill ate half of a filet fish on day 28 <laughs> of Last Jedi. And that's a story. Yeah. <laughs> and it goes viral. And it's like, okay, thanks, <laughs> thanks for that. So, but a lot of stuff was reported about the movie that we retooled the third act and had a, we had a script that we, that the studio liked, that they greenlit, that we started shooting. And about halfway through, um, not, and this was not entirely Shane's decision. It wasn't entirely my decision. It wasn't the producers. It was a, it was just that the whole studio f- film team uh, collaboration was. You know what? What if we take another stab at this? So, because we had shot the movie, basically, we were done, and we went back and we threw out uh, two reels. And, and rewrote them and reshot them uh, to, to tell essentially a different story. So there were elements of the original script that were completely thrown, and an actor, a fairly well-known actor, who's not in the movie anymore, uh, because we, sh- we threw his scenes out and threw out the character and threw out all the things that were attached to that. So it was a very interesting process. I don't know that it saved the movie, but it was certainly an interesting process. And what was... Uh the original ending or like how these reels you threw out what was kind of the movie that we never got to do you, see do you know the movie yes okay mm-hmm. from and i guess we'll just assume the audience has seen it yeah from the time that um the sterling k brown character traeger realizes that the kid rory um um knows where the alien crashed alien spacecraft is from there until the point at which our heroes jump onto the spaceship and it flies in the air is all new material. We had a different scene of the crashed alien spacecraft, and we had a different scene of, of Traeger showing up and uh, this other uh, character, uh, General Woodhurst, um, played by Edward James Olmos. And all of that was shot, but we remo- excised it and put in this new sequence, which which I actually like much better, which is the crash site is now in what looks kind of like a rock quarry. And that's where we allow the Dirty Dozen to kind of do their stuff and they have to kill some guards and they have to, and, and all in service of saving the kid that, that Jacob Tremblay plays. Um, so it really became much more about uh, the kid in jeopardy and we have to save him. I'd heard, is it true that more of the movie had taken place in the suburbs originally? Not any more than, the, than we saw? No. Yeah. 
And was there more just with the guys? Because my, my own feeling watching the movie, just as far as like, you know, like sometimes you can feel the editing, yep. is that I felt like the kind of first half of the movie were really just following, um, I'm forgetting the actor's name, who's kind of, who's our main guy. Boyd Holbrook, the, yeah. Yeah. And going through, and then like that whole sequence at the base where the, let's call him the OG predator, like mm-hmm. wakes up and goes on a rampage. It was like, that to me felt like, this everything's clicking. I mm-hmm. feel like this is what we were supposed to see. Yep. And then you could kind of increasingly feel like that scene felt like it was longer and they kind of Frankenstein it together a little bit and that we were supposed to have spent more time with our dirty dozen. That's an apt um, um, description. I think that's accurate. Also, like, was there, um, there was like a rumor and I, I peeked through the script and I saw something about like spider predators. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm just going to say it because everybody sort of knows anyway. In the movie, uh, when the fugitive predator arrives, um, that we indicate through a push-in and a blinking light that there's something on that ship. For the rest of the movie, various characters go, what's on that ship? And what we finally ended up with in the final version of the movie is the, f- the, f- the last scene of the movie in which it's revealed that it's actually a... Uh, uh, what do I call, what, what can I call it? Is it a Transformers-like supersuit that the that uh, the predators have uh, given us as a, that 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 a faction of predators is giving us as a gift to at least begin to thwart uh, an invasion, which we allude to in the movie that, mm-hmm. that maybe they're going to come here because they because we're, we're we have one or two generations left on this planet because of global warming and they like warm planets so yeah, <laughs> they're, they're yeah. they time. always come during the hottest summers. and we I, shannon i always really liked that that seemed like a cool science fiction premise um so but in the original script what was aboard the ship was not um a dumb supersuit. it was uh, a group of hybrids in stasis that were the thing that sterling k brown talks about with olivia munn that were actually sort of mutant uh, conglomerations of predator and creatures that they've fought on other planets. Um, and some of them were really scary. And the idea was that when they go to the crash site, they get out. And we shot a, a massive um, convoy sequence, which is our guys on top of a half track and jeeps in front and back. And it's this big kind of road, you know, road chase with these hybrids following them and jumping on them and killing them as they try to get to uh, to the ship. Oh, wow. So it was like a big action sequence. Yeah. <laughs> we shot it and it looks great. Huh. Uh, we just never added the hybrids. Yeah. Mm. What was the development process like for this? How much freedom were you guys given initially versus things the studio really cared about? It was a great, great collaboration and experience until towards the end. They let us do what we wanted to do. There were very few studio notes. Um, you know, they were concerned about political political correctness stuff, stuff that people might be offended by, whether it's language or this or that. But by and large, they left us alone until there was this sense, and I don't know if it came from a screening or two or if it was... Or, or if they just hadn't been paying attention and decided to change their minds. I don't know exactly what it was. But there was a component to the original script and the movie that we shot that included a faction of predators. As you see in the movie, there's 
there's there's one that we think is a bad guy, and then another guy who's worse kills him. And we, what we were interested in exploring, what do they do besides hunt? What's their culture? What's their civilization? What's going on on their planet? So we were just we're trying to lay the groundwork for more movies to explore that and not mm-hmm. just have them always being fucking hunters. Mm-hmm. Because if you go to the Ozarks and find a hunter and say, hey, you're hunting. Yes, I am. What else do you do? I got kids. <laughs> I got a job. I'm going to Miami next you know, summer. What else do they do? So that's what we were trying to investigate. And we had two predators that we built and shot um, that the, the guys at ADI did as practical predators um, who were emissaries, who represented the predators who don't want the bad stuff to happen. So they're essentially good guys. And everybody got very nervous about that. The fans are going to hate this. Hmm. And, you know, this is coming around the same time as The Last Jedi, which I'm a big fan of. But Ryan Johnson got a lot of crap for making choices that weren't what people expected. Mm-hmm. And I think we've entered uh, what I'll call the toxic fan area, where fans uh, are so um, committed and indebted to these things they love that they won't allow filmmakers to make choices that don't fall right in line with what they expected or want it to be. Um, and I think we fell victim to that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm getting a little bit of that on the Sonic the Hedgehog. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which shot on the same stages as the Predator. Yeah, <sighs> Vancouver. Yeah, so, I mean, so you do, I mean, oh, uh, yeah, I mean, so, like, the whole convoy sequence, was that painful to get rid of? I mean, do yeah. you prefer that? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it sounded... It was pr- very exciting. It was an exciting sequence. Shane staged it well. The second unit shot the crap out of it. But one thing that bothered me about it, in all candor, was that we shot it in daytime. It wasn't bright sunlight. It was misty, kind of spooky, misty back roads in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't spooky enough. Hmm. And so we said, you know, if we're going to do a hunt at the end, it's got to be nighttime and spooky. Gotcha. I would love to see those predator spiders. Doug. That sounds something. <laughs> we never finished the spiders. We never actually, they were all designed. Uh-huh. So there is, there, designs exist. But we never built, we built half of a, of a of a gecko, predator gecko, which killed the um, character played by Keegan Michael Key. Oh, so what other kind of? Pre- I mean, besides the spider and the gecko, were there any other hybrids? To- there were probably six or seven of them. One was that we called the bull predator, which kind of was like a giant. He was kind of like a black widow spider. No, no, the bull predator was. He was more like a. Kind of like a bull, actually. But this was Shane's purview. I didn't really have a hand in designing. Was the stuff that had mm-hmm. like concept art was all done for yeah, it? Yeah, and and it bothered me a little bit that all of them were sort of based on Earth creatures as opposed to alien creatures, which what they would have been. Mm-hmm. You know, because if you're going to do a bull, a bull I don't think is a particularly good predator. In fact, you know, they, I mean, it's not a predator. It's not. <laughs> yeah. People just stab it in Spain, and yeah, so. I'm not sure that that had anything to do with it, whether they were well-realized or not well-realized or conceived or whatnot. But uh, well, Speaking of fan expectations, although it sounds like the studio wasn't really trying to shove much onto you, like, was there ever any pressure to have actors from the other films, like to get Arnold Schwarzenegger well, you and asked follow about him? The, you asked about the ending, and uh, Shane and I really, really wanted and fought very hard to have Arnold at the end of the movie, and we wrote a scene for him. And I really felt that in the same way that um, that J.J. Abrams did with, with The Force Awakens, I think the fact that, that Luke Skywalker shows up at the end of that movie, whether you like the movie or not, you get that little buzz of nostalgia. Yeah. And you feel like, yeah, that was a real Star Wars movie. 
And I felt like we needed the movie to be anointed by Arnold. So we did write a scene where he shows up, and it's like, okay, I can't remember what the, what the dialogue is, but it's basically, okay, we got to going to take this to the next level and he's and it's clearly it's clear that he's been watching all of these proceedings and finally has come out of the woodwork because he's needed and for purely you know political financial personal all that stuff all those reasons uh he opted not to be involved and then it was kind of a scramble to okay well then what's the ending because we had an ending but it was very small and and intimate where where jacob uh and his dad sort of, you know, pay homage to the to the, to their dead uh, soldier friends, um, but it wasn't the kind of you know a movie of this scale you want to have something that the crowd can go crazy. So wait, am I, I'm trying to think of I'm just I imagine this or was it just an in joke? Is Jake Busey's character supposed to be the son of Gary Busey's character yes. from Predator Two? Yes. Okay. And in previous cuts of the movie, that was clear because. When Olivia Munn is is doing her research on her pad, she sees a picture of Gary Busey, nah. and we know that they have the same name, and the name is on the thing. And yeah, there's a whole bunch of stuff that like that where we just trim, 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 trim. Yeah, I I, I love that because I love I'm apologist for Predator Two. I love that film, and I was so <laughs> excited to see him in it. And what I what I think is also interesting about the Schwarzenegger thing was in one of the drafts of Predators at the very ending. It wasn't in the film, no, so no spoiler. One of the the last slain predators that they kill, you know, when they take off its helmet, it's Arnold Schwarzenegger's character. No, he, he <laughs> so and, and it, it was Dutch. So so Dutch was pretty much the lead predator hunting Adrian Brody and all those cats in oh, that wow. film. That, but yeah, that's in one of the many predators drafts. I love that ending. People say I'm crazy for it, but I'm like, it was a surprise. I kind of well, we, we wanted to bring him back too and and much closer to that was was an idea I had which became the ending. It, I didn't I didn't come up with the ending that we have, but I came up with the notion that that whatever was aboard the ship, it wasn't a series of pods as we had originally written that had the the, the hybrids in it, but a single one. And and I pitched to Shane that it was Adrian Brody. Um, that oh, he, that's awesome! And uh, he, he, I think his feeling was, you know, not enough people saw that movie, and it's, it isn't iconic. He goes, "What if it's Ripley?" <laughs> so we shot Ripley. The problem is, uh, Sigourney didn't want to do it, and I don't blame her. You know, this character is very important to her, and it's just sort of a throwaway. But we did shoot them opening up the pod at the end. And you see this green, clad, green jumpsuit-cladded figure with, with you know, black hair and and this face mask, uh, uh, atmosphere mask, and and little stitched on her military khakis. It says Ripley. So that that film exists. Um, and oh, we wow. actually there was a couple of days there where we were waiting for the phone call. Okay, yeah, yes, give us a yes, give us a no. Give, um, but she opted not to. So. Oh. Um, well, before we wrap it, this up, did you have another film you wanted to ask oh, about? He, he already touched on Shadow Company. I, I found it to be fascinating because, like he said, it was written by him and Shane Black, directed by John Carpenter and produced by Walter Hill. And I just found, like, I didn't know any, I just, what, what was that supposed to be about really quick? Because I just found that, that whole, you four, yeah. like. It, it was a, it was a Vietnam horror movie. It was a, a movie about a, um, a, 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 a 
bunch of bodies that are found in uh, Cambodia in the, the the year we wrote it, which would have been eighty nine something. So the the war is long over, but they find the bodies of a uh, special forces unit in Cambodia, and they ship them back to the states for a military burial, uh, and they don't stay buried. <laughs> oh wow! That, um, thank you for. Uh, it sounds pretty. I, I just it's the most violent, darkest thing that Shannon and I ever wrote. Ooh. And I think that's why Universal ultimately decided not to do it. Mm. Ah, it's such a shame. A Carpenter and Walter Hill produced. Oh, and sounds... to sit in a room with those guys, these heroes oh. of mine, and wow. watch them be them—it was really, it was really something. Wow, that's uh, well. And yeah, I just like to tell the audience again: if you could find this Johnny Quest script again, I think you could find it easily online. It's, it's yeah, it's a super fun. It's read. one of the greatest scripts I've ever written, and just please check it out. It's I feel written. Like they can still just make this. Now. I think they could make that exact script too. <laughs> I really do. I'm sorry. I, I just need to that. make a giant hit movie. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway. Um, well, thank you to Mr. Fred Decker for joining us again. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Um, you can follow Best Movies Never Made by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like what you hear, please rate us five stars. Subscribe today to make sure you automatically get every new episode when it's available. And while you're at it, subscribe to our sister podcast, The 430 Movie, in which a panel of filmmakers curate a fantasy theme week of classic movies every Friday in Inglorious Trexperts, the only podcast for Star Trek fans with a life, available every Saturday night. And finally, a very special thanks to producers Dean Dow Evelyn and Mark A. Altman, sound engineer Bill Ritter, and everyone here at Electric Surge Network for making this show possible. Again, I am Josh Miller, and this is Steven Scarlatta saying until next time, we won't see you at the movies. This podcast is a production of the Electric Surge Network.